Hi, I'm Abe Madcor, and welcome to the SBJ Spotlight Roundtable, where we regularly gather a panel of experts to discuss some of the big issues in sports business. I'm joined today by our media writer, John Aran, frequent guest, Mihir Walavakar, CEO of LiveLike, and first-time guest, Rick Burton. Rick is a longtime contributor to Sports Business Journal. He's the David Falk Professor of Sport Management at Syracuse. Rick, you've had time at the ACC, the NCAA, uh, as a faculty athletic rep, and your former commissioner of Australia's National Basketball League. Welcome to each of you. First, let's start with NFL ratings. John, some numbers came out this week that followed the end of the NFL regular season. Let's dial back to September. You and I both predicted in earlier shows that NFL ratings could be up as much as 10% this season, and that's exactly what happened. What, what do you make of the numbers? What does this mean for the league? Prescient. We're prescient, Abe. But there's a reason why last year the NFL got $110 billion out of, out of the TV networks. And that's because I don't want to get into the horse race of who's up, who's down, because that, that changes here and there, but it doesn't change with the NFL. They have the biggest audiences of, of any sport, of any genre on television uh, that there is. The one thing that I always point to is week 18 on Saturday night, there were two meaningless games, one involving the Dallas Cowboys, that's always a big ratings getter, one involving Patrick Mahomes and, and the Kansas City Chiefs. And they brought the, the Cowboys, they were the biggest audience of that week. And the Chiefs were in the, in the top three or four of that, uh, just uh, phenomenal. Rick Burton, as a newcomer, what do you make of the strength of NFL viewership? You know, there are a lot of people who predict that uh, American football is going to go downhill. It's not a global sport. Um, that You know, the time has come. It hasn't. And it's pretty exciting to see the NFL continuing to do so well. And you got to give them props. Uh, whether the quarterbacks are the same names that people remember from 10 years ago or not, uh, they keep uh, introducing new uh, storylines that keep working. The games are also really fun. Like the quality of the, con the, the, the play on pitch, it's actually been really fun the whole time. It's been an exciting year. And John, you mentioned the Cowboys. I mean, the strength of the Cowboys, I forget what the final numbers showed, but of the top 20 most viewed NFL games, so I think the Cowboys had like seven or eight of them. The draw of the star is still paramount. And there's a reason. At the Super Bowl, every single year, uh, the the uh, TV executives meet with NFL executives and all of the TV executives, they, they angle for as many Cowboy games as they get, get. And you can better believe that's what's going to happen in L.A. next month. Abe, it's pretty valuable, I think, to recognize that Tom Brady keeps playing, says he's going to play until he's 50. Aaron Rodgers is playing as well as he ever has. Dak Prescott has really kind of come into his own. You've got some pretty good quarterback names to work with. Yeah, and I'm with Mahir. I just think the product on the field has been week in and week out, like incredibly exciting. I think it bodes well for the postseason. Of course, we'll see the final numbers after SoFi Stadium and the Super Bowl in February. Well, let's shift from NFL to the end of the college football season with the game between two SEC teams in the CFP final, the second lowest rated championship game ever. You know, there are a lot of issues facing college sports, and I think the athletic director job is probably the hardest job in sports. You know, one thing I found interesting in the last week was that both coaches in the football championship, you had Alabama's Nick Saban, you had Georgia's Kirby Smart, they warned 
that the current trends in intercollegiate athletics were going to be disruptive and further separate the top programs from everyone else. You know, Rick, you've been in and around college sports for a long time. With all the challenges facing the industry, which are the ones you're most concerned about when it comes to intercollegiate athletics? Well, the NCAA is going to have its convention in late January, the 20th, 19th, 20th or so. Uh, I think you're going to see constitutional change uh, with more power given to Division I. Abe, you've been following this pretty closely. I think the real issue is not NIL per se. That's going to change things a little bit. Uh, but that the NCAA product just keeps getting attacked from all sides, um, getting harder and harder, I think, for the fans to know what to like and maybe what not to like. Mahir, you've been following college sports a little bit more closely in your business. What surprises you or concerns you about the state of college sports right now? Well, as a Georgia Tech alum, uh, the fact that Georgia won is what concerns <laughs> me. Um, I just think people are not sure where, where everything is going to shake out at the end of it. But from a fan perspective, I don't know. As a fan, I thought, I thought the games were pretty good. Like the, the championship game was really good. I don't know why. Maybe there's a little bit of fatigue in, you know, just seeing Bama in there again every year. I, you, you can make that case about every sport, right? Like how many more times can we really see Bama win? Now, maybe next year it might be better because they lost this year. But I don't know. It's... Um, once the once the CFP expansion and st and stuff sort of gets settled down, things might be a little bit easier to predict going forward. Let's get to that because we saw the leaders of the college football playoff at a standstill, unable to come to a decision that would expand the CFP. As you mentioned, me here, you know, I was struck by the personal tensions that were evident within that room and even outside the room where they can't get to an agreement. So they have to work through the personalities here. But John, there are a lot of implications. One of them is from a media rights standpoint. Yeah, Abe, have you ever, you've done this for a long time, have you ever seen less cohesion no. in the college space? I mean, the divisiveness and the contentiousness in that room among the commissioners, it's real. You had the Big Ten and the ACC going up against the SEC and the Big 12, and they, they could not come to an agreement in favor of expansion. And it, they, there's a deadline that's coming up with that as well. They're eight years into a 12-year deal. They have four years left in their deal with, uh, with uh, ESPN for the college football playoff. You know, Rick, I know there's also been a lot of discussion, but the uh, idea of athletes unionizing and becoming a, a more formal union and negotiating or collectively bargaining, I think is something, uh, it's a drumbeat we continue to hear, correct? Yeah, we do. And, and I think the challenge is the belief that whatever the student athlete is getting from their host university, tuition, room and board, um, all the pieces that go into that, that someone, um, and it may not be fair to say who the someone is, believes that that's not enough, that the market you know, value of what is provided is not being compensated to the level that someone believes it should be. Um, whether that requires or takes us to unionization, I think still remains to be seen. Yeah, you know, I want to move on because Mihir, you are so in tune uh, on a thought leadership front when it comes to technology. All of my conversations have been about the metaverse lately. I don't fully understand it. NFTs, blockchain, you know, you've seen a number of examples that are pretty interesting. One that struck me this week, the Australian Open, planning to sell NFTs based on the technology that it now uses for line judging. And they're in within the balls on the court and they really see an opportunity there. Do you see opportunities there? And do you see this as the, the next step in the proliferation of NFTs? 
Um, I thought it was a really interesting use case, the way they put it out there. In fact, it, it, my market has spoken as well, right? They, they were sold out within three minutes. Um, so clearly there was demand for it. And I think it was a really well done use case because they were utilizing existing technology, the Hawkeye technology right. um, to create a new use case for it. And they're com commemorating that by giving you the ball that actually hits the mark. I guess, I, I suppose it's the 12th, the 12th one. My attention with the Australian Open was so taken over by what was happening with Djokovic that everything else was sort of almost in the background. But I did follow this topic because it's close to what we do. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I can see many more use cases coming up like that, you know, even in our own world of sports technology, I can already see a lot of our peers in the industry are starting to figure out how do they provide utility. That's something that LiveLike focuses on as well is NFT, if NFTs, I mean, I've read an article by, by your um, uh, colleague as well from the Esports Observer about how, his experience using, um, getting the NFT with WWE. If the NFTs end up becoming a repackaged hospitality experience, I don't see, I'm not bullish on that trend. But if you're creating new use cases and new utilities, hey, Steph is going to break his record. If, you, if he breaks that record, do you want the highlight of that as an NFT? Will you be paying extra for that? Those are the kind of use cases where automation and technology, highlights clipping, and consumer demand can sort of come into play. You're seeing that with the Australian Open. I definitely see, um, I, I definitely see that trend growing further and further in the future. And Mahir, you came uh, out of the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. I know yeah. you went for, I think, a 48-hour period. Yeah. What did you see? Were there any sports applications or new uses of sports technology that caught your eye? Um, it was the least stressful CES I have ever been to. Um, I didn't have to run back and forth between meetings. Um, I think maybe you were the only one there, Mahir. I, I probably was. Uh, there were, um, uh, you know, to a certain extent, a lot of the focus on the hardware front was on robotics and on AR, VR, as has always been, because that's, that's, that's going to be, you know, hardware improvements on those fronts is going to be a slow grind. So every year you see incremental improvements. Mahir, but what a, what a great time to be a sports entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, AI, I mean, the Oasis, we we're really talking about Ready Player One. And, yeah. and whether we've come to that era yet, you know, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, just such a great time. And I, I think, uh, Abe, one of the topics that is going to be really key is data. Who owns it? and How do they get it? I think you're going to see wearables. You're going to see companies like Sportable. You're going to see these kind of organizations that are going to come out of nowhere and they're going to create data that we've never had access to before. And Mihir's right about we're going to see demand, I think, for things that uh, just it's exciting imagining where the next five years take us. I, I mean, I, I feel like in the next 24 to 36 months, there is going to have to be a lot of consolidation in the in the sports tech ecosystem because there are quite a few. The lines have been blurred between what's happening on the production side, what's happening on the consumption side, what's happening on the distribution side. And um, without some sort of, and, and now with betting coming to the fore, like there is a clear use case where all these sort of technologies are gonna merge. Um, so that consolidation is gonna be a big thing that I'm looking out for going forward. Um, and I, as you mentioned, right? Like once there's data, so much data is being generated, that's when AI and ML really start make, making sense, right? You're using data science to create recommendations and personalization. Everything that we just talked about, NFTs, the blockchain, uh, metaverse, it all sort of,
fits together when you think about it from that landscape. But I don't know if anyone really understands all those concepts fully yet. It's still being fleshed out. We are still very, very early there. Well, I know something I don't understand, and that's a lot of what you just talked about, Mahir. One thing I do understand, and you may not realize it, but the Winter Olympics start in around three weeks as we film this. You're forgiven if you had no idea, because you're not alone, because the promotion has almost been uh, non-existent. I even feel like NBC has backed down from its constant hype machine. So many headwinds facing these specific games. Rick, you're familiar with the Olympics. You've worked in the Olympic movement. You've written a lot about the games. What's your take as we approach the opening ceremony? You know, Abe, it's, it's, I, I hadn't really been thinking about Beijing, and I should be. And I was in a taxi the other night in New York City, and the NBC promo came on on the taxi screen. Yes, same, this, same for me. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of this is because we're not watching television anymore. And so if you're not getting that promo piece on your laptop or on your iPad, you're having to get it on the taxi <laughs> or in the taxi. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sad for NBC. They paid a huge amount of money for these rights. I'm sad for the IOC that the world is changing. Um, people will figure it out. We'll get there. The Beijing games will probably be great. Um, but right now they need a good controversy actually to drive an awareness um, that the games are about to start. I have two experienced sports business executives that don't hit mute in cat taxi cabs. It's uh, incredible. <laughs> there was, uh, usually I would, but there was, they were showing an athlete who's married to a Denver Bronco. That was the promo that I saw. <laughs> that, that got you. Yeah. Listen, uh, NBC is going to have the Olympics on for a fortnight. They're going to win prime time for two and a half weeks. Uh, the, the ratings are gonna be well down from four years uh, uh, beforehand, but they're, they're, they're still going to be significant. They're gonna do well. And NBC always knew that they had to get through Tokyo and Beijing to the promised land of Paris and LA. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I mean, I don't know, Rick, if I could say I feel sad for the IOC. I mean, the <laughs> IOC, you know, it's their bed. They made it, you know, they almost have a blind eye when it comes to China, in my mind. You know, for sponsors, there's bad timing. They can't execute right after Tokyo. They don't have enough time. But, like, I know, like John said, they're just keeping their head down. They just want to get through these games. They don't want to deal with the social uh, the cultural, the political challenges of China. And I'm sure NBC probably wants to avoid that headache as well. And so get through these games. You know, the IOC is not going to say anything or make any statements that would all uh, run counter to their host in China. And I don't think sponsors are going to put principles over profit as the WTA tour is trying to do. So again, I think they're head down, just roll through these games. I don't think they'll be incredibly successful because I think Tokyo and Beijing will be the most challenged Olympic environment and Olympic games we will ever see. And to Iran's, John Iran's great point, they are looking at that potential and promise of Paris and beyond. That's when we'll really see if the Olympic movement can move beyond these two challenging games of Tokyo and Beijing. You know, Abe, the only thing I'd come back with, and I agree with you, no one's going to feel sad for the IOC. Uh, but I was with Steve Phelps one time when Steve worked at uh, the NFL. He's at NASCAR, obviously, now. And Major League Baseball went on strike. And I said to Steve, this has got to be good for the NFL, right? And he said, 
no, it's bad when a league, you know, shuts down. And, and so I think I feel the same way about the IOC. If they are in a down period, I think it actually hurts all of sport rather than imagining if these were going to be great games. So I'll, I'll go with you that sad is maybe the wrong emotion, um, but I think we're missing out on this global entity that actually has the potential, the capacity to lift all the boats. And I'm not sure that they're going to do that with these games. Well, on that note, we'll be watching certainly in a couple of weeks. I know we'll talk more about the Beijing games closer to the games. So we're closing another episode of our SBJ Spotlight Roundtable. Rick, great to have you on for the first time. Mahir, great to have you back. John, always good to see you. Thank you all for joining us on SBJ Spotlight Roundtable. If you have comments, questions, or even thoughts for future ideas, panels, or topics, send them to Spotlight at sportsbusinessjournal.com. Until next time, stay safe, be good to each other. We'll see you down the road on the next SBJ Spotlight Roundtable.